it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, make sure. Yeah, we're recording, so I'm going to start. Y'all ready? Ready. Ready. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. That's Briscoe. I'm Bradshaw, and we are thrilled today. The, one of the biggest what-ifs stories in the history of this business. But what's so cool about this is he was such a big name that 35 years after his last match, when he put out on social media, you're going to talk to Magnum TA, people go nuts. That's how big this character is and this person is. Magnum, welcome to the show. And it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Look, I want to get started with something uh, very serious, if I can, because we've talked a lot about in Florida and the Florida territories, the Briscoes there. Uh, anybody who's come on this show has said one thing. Fighting for that T-shirt on the side of the road was one thing, but Magnum TA is the best beer drinker not named Andre in the history of this business. <laughs> How much beer could you actually drink? Well, you know, the, the thing of it is, is you know, I, I was a young man, and I didn't, I didn't know that there were supposed to be things that were outside the, the norm. You know, we just, you know, I, I'd been having a good time, you know, for, for years driving up down the road with Andre sometimes too in, in Portland, Oregon when I started. So I didn't know, you know, being able to drink 20, 25, 30 beers, you know, it, on, a, on a road trip back in a couple hours was a big deal because that's just what we did. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I get down there and I meet, uh, you know, Jack and Jerry and, and, uh, and then all of a sudden I hear about this leader of the pack thing that's so infamous. And they start telling me the stories about it and how Jimmy Garvin was the reigning leader of the pack and, and this, that, and the other, blah, 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 blah. And, and I said, well, you know, we, I guess we'll just see what we see. And, uh, and so the deal was, you know, if you, if you challenge for the shirt and you could challenge any time, any day. You you didn't get like a day off. It's like twenty four seven title, right? Right. The Terry is like that hardcore twenty four seven title. You can challenge anytime, anytime. Exactly. So you know, and they would use that against you because obviously, if you were peaking every night, if you're if you're hitting twenty eight to thirty two to thirty five beers a night, you're getting a little <laughs> you're getting a little thin in the skin, you know. And then to top it all off, at the end of it, if you were you were challenging the, the champion and maybe he did outdrink you. Well then, or he, or you outdrank him. You could challenge for a takedown. 
you could have <laughs> one takedown to see who could get control at the at the tail end of it, wherever you'd met parked up that night. So Jimmy and I had our deal and, and I was in I was in pretty good shape. So I put him away pretty pretty significantly. And he was a, he wasn't feeling too good, but he didn't challenge me for that takedown. And that turkey he got out and we were in front of the days in down there in Tampa and he shot before I was even knew he was coming and I grabbed him by two handfuls of hair and plowed his beak right down through the grass and made a little plow mark with him. And and he submitted and it was all over. It was good. But it it, it was the deal. And just just so the legend is is uh even more oh, man. this is the infamous oh. shirt. And it's oh, and, it, and and it is stained and it's got it's got it's got a sewed up place here on the back where it got <laughs> one time and put it back together. And so and we can gr- we can grab we can grab we can grab shirts and stuff like that. And, 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 and uh, it's a good thing that mile marker there, but Jimmy might have had you if I recall right. He, he was in on you, but you healed out like like yeah. you said. You grab that time and, and yeah. Jimmy now you know he's clean shaven. Uh, and uh, but back in those days, uh, John uh, Jimmy had a head of hair on him uh, out to here, right, Terry? Oh, it was a handle. But you don't uh, know the rest of the story. See. He got and then he healed me back out of the out of the title with Brian Blair. They fudged me and they were they were sharing beers and throwing ones out and and got lost to count. So years and years and years later, after my accident, and this is like 1990 something, Bobby Fulton comes over and gets me one night. He said, Let's go get that shirt. And we he takes me over to Jimmy's house, and Jimmy wasn't prepared. We come in with a case of beer, throw it down on the counter, and said, It's on, you're defending. And I, <laughs> when I sat there, I drank three three fourths of the case of beer, and he drank one and called it a day. And he gave me the shirt, and I, I retired. <laughs> you know that shirt is like the holy grail. That's the first time I've ever seen it. I mean that that is like a mythical creature oh, in yeah. professional wrestling. No, I, this has been through three marriages and divorces, and <laughs> and and I mean it's the only real memorabilia I, that matters about anything, and I've managed to hold on to it. I hope that shirt wasn't the cause of those three marriages. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Maybe one. Yeah. Well, yeah, what went with anything? But you know, yeah, I'm, pr- I'm proud of it, Jerry. Yeah, was that, that, that shirt. I mean, uh, you know, I, I can't. You know, how many guys, Manny Fernandes? You know, I mean, uh, everybody that come through El Grand Apollo. You know, uh, everybody, everybody challenged for that shirt, and and Terry's uh, the the leader of the pack, man. <laughs> you know, was that your last battle with Garvin? That last yeah, one that, that, about? that was the last, and it, it was appropriate because my my last match in the ring was with Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy and I were in a feud here, and we had a lumberjack match uh, the night that I had the accident that ended it all. And then then I came back a couple of years later, but and got the real championship from him and and the and the title of the leader of the pack because I mean. The real championship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the ten pounds of gold and all that stuff was just for yeah. This was a shoot. Yeah, that is one of the most talked about shirts in the history of this business. It's it's, it's well, exciting. Now, now you know where it's at, but don't don't try to challenge me. I, I, if you come to my door, I'm not letting you in. <laughs> I've heard too much about you to challenge you. Talk about marriages. Jerry Briscoe was supposed to be a groomsman in, in my wedding, and he called me up and he said, "John, I'm sorry, my kid made the state tournament," and he said. I can't make your wedding. I said, of course not, Jerry. Go go to your kid's uh, wrestling match. And he said, I promise I'll be a groomsman in your next wedding, too. <laughs> I said, 
And you know what? That's the same thing Dusty told me one time. So I, I know exactly where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk hey, about speaking, speaking of uh, speaking of which, uh, Terry, I mean, when you came to Florida, man, uh, you know, you were young, but I, I you know, I would tell at least how you got to Florida and we were, you were out and out in Oregon, out on the West Coast, I believe, because when you come in, that's what we heard. We, we heard you were the shooter from uh, Oregon's coming in uh, to challenge you guys. Well, here here's the deal. So now you were state champion in Virginia, went to Old Dominion University. Yeah. Did you play ball there in Russell? Or no, I'll, the school I went to only ha- didn't have a, a football team. They had soccer, basketball, and wrestling. And I wasn't gonna, I wasn't going down any of those other avenues. And uh, wrestling ended up being my thing. And I was a big Dan Gable fan. So and now, know. now let me. I'm gonna jump in here real quick. Then I'm not gonna jump in again for a while. But Judge, I. I John, don't know the story. Tell tell the story about what your mom did and and what inspired you to become a state champion. So so I'm an only child and 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 uh, I wasn't a a natural athlete by any stretch of the imagination. I was just just an average kid. But my mom got me Dan Gable's book after he'd won the '72 Olympics, and I read that book, and it it like lit a fire in me, and I went from like like the old uh, Charles Atlas, uh, you know, uh, comic, the little skinny kid to get sand kicked in his face, uh, you know, in the ninth grade to I pinned everybody I wrestled my senior year and won the state championship. Uh, and, and Gable's story inspired me to the point that I just, I had this drive and this ambition. And, and it's the reason I went to Waterloo, Iowa, was to tell him the story. What a huge, uh, you know, inspiration he'd been in my life and and i know he's he's inspired you know thousands and thousands of people but for me he was uh he was john wayne and all that rolled into one as far as the impact you know he had on me personally what kind of reaction did he give you when he told him that story uh he he, uh you could tell it touched him and and uh you know i and i explained i said i drove a long way to get here and i went around my elbow to get to my thumb (laughs) <laughs> but but I'd do it all again to have a chance to just see you eyeball to eyeball one time and tell you what you meant you know meant to me and uh, you know how much you inspired me in my lifetime. And and one of the reasons you drove was because the segue that you used to get around you, you can't take on planes right so you end up driving yeah. all the way out to Waterloo yeah. Iowa and you took a little circle route to get there correct? Yeah, I was I was following Siri. I was following my Siri, had the iPhone, and I was going across the country, and I didn't even think about the fact that there was more than one Waterloo. I just thought Waterloo was out west somewhere, and there couldn't be more than one of them, and that was stupid. I'm lucky I didn't end up in Alaska or something. I mean, you know, there's just no telling. But, uh, uh, yeah, when you know, I was talking. I, I actually pulled up to a lady on the street and asked her where the convention center was. <laughs> And she was like saying, we don't have a convention center like that. I'm going, man, I know, I know I, I, I got the right event. And then I realized I was in the complete wrong state. But I, you know, I did make it across. It about, I'd, I'd only driven 16, 1,700 miles. What was two, three hundred more? You know, it didn't really matter. How did you end up getting started in Portland? You're, I guess you're out there in 78 and 79. Is that right? And, and Piper oh, was yeah. out there then, right? Along with I, I, gra- in and out? I graduated high school in 77. And I and I went to a year and a half of college at Old Dominion University in uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. I broke in in 1980 in Portland. And what happened? I met Buzz Sawyer, and when he was in Mid Atlantic, 
and and buzz like because the kayfabe was so heavy back then you know nobody really like talked to you tell you what's what but he met me because i was bouncing in nightclubs and the clubs i came to virginia beach uh rugs gallery and peabody's so he like kind of like takes me off to the side and says hey you know i i can do this that and the other blah 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 blah, blah. long story short some things happened that weren't real ethical but he left and went to portland and he said hey i'm gonna go get things set up for you to start but if you go pick my little brother brett up down in tampa take him to mid-south i'll call you so i i do i drive from virginia to tampa pick up brett take him to new orleans and uh shreveport and 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 i drove him and some of the other guys around for about a month went to all the matches haven't had a first match haven't haven't done a tie up a wrist lock, wrist watch, no nothing at this point in time. And I can't get a hold of Buzz. Buzz is like like unavailable. So one day I tell Jimmy Garvin my story about what had happened. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, if I were you, he said, I'd get in that car of yours and I'd drive out there and go be on his doorstep. And that's what I did. Unannounced, Buzz opens the door, Portland, Oregon. I found out his address, found out his apartment number, beat on the door, opens it up. I said, I'm here, I'm ready to go. So he, what did he say? He said, okay. And, <laughs> and the silver tongue devil that he is, he goes into Don, tells Don, hey, I got this young guy. He's been working down there for Bill in Mid-South. I don't work to lick. I don't own a pair of boots or a pair of tights. You haven't even but been in the ring, have you? I've never been in a ring. So, wow. so he sells it to Don. He takes me down to the bowling alley where they, where they filmed. And him and I and Princess Victoria worked out in the ring for a solid two hours. He taught me how to hit the ropes, how to, how to grab a headlock, how to take a tackle, how to take an arm drag, how to give an arm drag. Two-hour workout. The very next night, I'm on live television wrestling Buzz. Huh. And, and never looked back. That was it. That was my indoctrination. I worked seven days a week from then on out and learned it all in the ring. Well, that sounds real, real similar to the way I broke in in Jack's dining room. He showed me a couple of headlock and a wrist lock and, you know, how to take a bump. And uh, the next night I was in the ring against uh, uh, the the Leroy McGurk's tag team champions, Jack and I, because uh, his partner got hurt. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny how things work out like that. But uh, you, after, after you, who was your first match? Who who who'd, who'd they put you in? So my very first match was Buzz. And wow. it was with Buzz, so I'd worked out in the ring with him. Damn him. <laughs> so so him and I, I mean, we went out there and had about an eight, nine, ten-minute match. And like I said, never I've never done anything anywhere, and I'm on TV. And uh, and nobody ever got smartened up to it. So I just, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was like I didn't know the lingo. Like three weeks in the business, I'm working with Gene Kaninsky in Seattle. You know, big Gene, big, rough, rugged guy, right? Was he champion at the time? No, he wasn't the champion, but he it wasn't that long since he'd been the champion. So I'm in there with Gene. Gene picks me up, drops me behind him, tells me to roll him up. I don't know what a roll-up is. <laughs> I belly the back, suplexed him on his head. And he, <laughs> he popped. He came in the back. He said, man, that was exciting. I didn't know what we were doing. I said, I didn't know either. <laughs> I didn't know what a roll-up was. I thought that's something you did in the kitchen when you're making something to eat. Did you learn one? I I might have learned a couple of those those things along the line. Were you but, out there? Uh, how, how was Piper out there? Were you out there with Roddy? No, Roddy was not there then. I mean, it was like uh, 
Dutch Savage was the booker and uh, uh, Jay Youngblood was there and uh, uh, the Barbarian, he was just breaking into and oh Lord, you know, he's 280 pound, you know, Samoan and uh, him and I are both green as could be and they put us out there for 20 minute broadways like as a rib to see which one of us is going to live. And, uh, you know, it it was uh, uh, Matt Borden was there. His dad, Tony Borden. Gosh, it's hard. Like I said, it's hard to remember. But I was only there six months. But I met Andre there because I had the big big car. I had this old 98 diesel four-door. So when Andre came, we had the big car, drove drove the giant around. And so him and I got to be friends there. And that started – started something that led to something really big in my career when I got to Florida. But uh, did you take Elton, did you take Elton Owens uh, money when you, uh, was he still doing that deal where he'd yeah. slip a guys a few dollars to shoot on each other? Oh yeah. 30 bucks. You get an extra 30 bucks if you did the wow. shoot. And then, and then we'd split the shoot, you know, and so yeah. we'd, just make, we'd make a better payoff. But I did, I, yeah. You I worked with Matt, or Matt Moore awesome, a couple times. Man. <laughs> Yeah, the, yeah I mean, John, John, you know the story there. Elton Owen, uh, Don Owen, brother, you, uh, he liked really real wrestling, you know, wrestlers. So if he knew he'd, he'd come over, hey, I'll give you an extra 30 bucks, 40 bucks if you'll go out and you'll take, for real, take this guy down. You know, of course, he wouldn't smarten up the other guys. So, you know, after a while, the guy just started smartening up each other. Hey, I get 30 bucks and I will split it. So they got an extra payoff for that. And exactly. Owens never knew they, they were working him. Well, we were working for Otto and Peter in Europe. It's very much similar, same thing. The, the referee would fine the baby face and give, you know, give him a fine like $50 or $75 or something. And some fan would always come up and pay the fine. So the more heated a match would get, you know, sometimes it might be several hundred dollars in fines. We weren't making much money. And, of course, we split it with the referee <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the other guy. It was all the boys always find out a way to work anything. Oh my gosh. But, but, you know, to to get me over to Florida, I got to give you one more hop. So I was six months there working full time. And somehow, somehow I got, I got a call from somebody. They wanted me to go to LA and I wasn't real hip on LA. Some the vibe just didn't feel right. And I got, I got a hold of Joe Blanchard and Joe, got brought me into his territory and I, I, I got some really good experience there. It, it was some, uh, I mean, some amazing hands there. And, and now, you know, I knew a little bit, I mean, six months in the business, but seven, seven nights a week, six months of the business was a lot more, you know, than you know, a lot of these guys get today. So about five months into my tour there in, in, uh, in the Southwest, this guy that I've never met before named Mike Graham comes in junior there. I think he was supposed to be the junior heavyweight champion of the world or something comes in guest spotting. And Mike and I hit it off. Like we've known each other our entire lives. We go out, we just have big old time tearing up the town together. And he has so much fun for me that he goes back and tells his dad, Hey, there's this young guy over in, in San Antonio that we got to bring in here. He, he we're going to, he's going to do something, blah, 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 blah. And so he was my, my my stepping stone to get into the into Florida Championship Wrestling, and that's where my real education uh, started with Eddie Graham and and uh, Dory and and the Briscoes and and eventually Dusty coming in. That was a huge learning piece for me. 
How bad uh, would uh, John, uh, Terry said something there in the beginning of this story, you know, that you and I, I talked about several times. You know, something just didn't feel right about L.A. Remember, we used to talk about the guys on the West Coast, you know, they, they you know, San Francisco and L.A., those guys, it, it was all the way up the coast, all the way to Washington and there. But what was it that just didn't feel right? Just the style, Terry, or what, you know, I mean, yes. I, I, you know, I, I've, I've heard the same thing from uh, many, many guys, right, John? We, we always hear that. I, I, I just, it didn't. I mean, I watched, I saw tapes of them and things they were doing, and it wasn't just, I didn't feel comfortable in, in just the programming out there and what it looked like. And, and I didn't see myself growing like I wanted to go. Because, I mean, from the minute, from my first week in the business, my, my ambition was to one day be world champion. That, that was just it. I didn't get in to be just there. I wanted to be the best one day. And I knew I was going to have to learn a lot to get, you know, even on a, you know, this far up the ladder to to make that happen. And I didn't see that as being, you know, moving me in the right direction. Who was booking that? Because we were talking about this before, me and Jerry. You know, Pat Patterson, uh, who's a good friend of, of Jerry and I both, a much better friend of, of Jerry, uh, would talk about Gorgeous George. And he didn't like people coming out of L.A. You know, he was up big up in San Francisco and even further up in, in Portland. But there was always that contention between L.A. and then, further up who was booking then in LA that wanted you to come out there do you remember no I don't see why you saw the same thing as what I'm getting at right yeah yeah I I did and like I said it just didn't feel right and I had driven up the coat when I went to Portland I drove all the way across the United States and then straight up the coast to uh to Portland and it was just the people the everything about that that area you know, I'm I'm an East Coast guy. I'm you know I'm country from out you know out on the farms and and it it just I didn't I didn't jive in that whole uh, that whole scene whatsoever. I just felt out of my out of my element. How bad were the Briscoes' payoffs? The Briscoes. <laughs> okay, oh, now you're Florida. in Florida now. That's where he gets. Now shoot. Well, I mean, when I came to work there, Dory was the booker, and. Uh, and I mean, you know, Mike and Eddie, I mean, they took care of me. I, I blew my knee out while I was down there and they paid for the surgery, took care of everything, took, you know, made sure I had enough, uh, you know, hamburger and beer money to, to survive until I could get back in the ring, which I think I did in about two weeks after, you know, orthoscopic surgery. And, uh, and it was just, you know, every night I got to travel with Eddie for about the first, first several months I was there, fly on the plane with him. And he was in my ear every night. I watched the matches with him from the back. He taught me, he just taught me so much about psychology, about the difference in, in registering something and selling it and then dying. You know, the differences and all the things you need to do to paint the picture, to tell the story. So I had, I had just this, you know, flood of information coming in besides the fun and the parties and everything we did, you know, late night it, from, from the time I got to that arena, Till we left, it was just I was soaking it up like a sponge, and Eddie was just phenomenal. I mean, Mike, Mike didn't ever talk to me about psychology about anything, but how to chase a skirt, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I love Mike to death. He was like he was he was older than me, but he was like a little brother rather than a big brother. But his dad was just he was you know like a professor, 
of the business. It was, it was amazing. You know, that's one of the things that people talk about today. You know, you, you know, the learning that you do in the car, you know, that's how, that's how we learned the business. You know, you talk about the matches, but we didn't have anything else to do. You know, now they have all these iPhones, they have all the social media, they have all this stuff. We didn't have any of that. We just had each other. And that's why some of the, the ribs got so crazy. Some of the stories got so crazy because we had to be our own entertainment. Well, thank God they didn't, or we wouldn't have any, uh, we wouldn't have any made it. Because if they'd recorded any of that stuff, we'd all been locked up or, you know, something. I mean, it, it wouldn't have ended well. <laughs> and a promoter, no other promoter would have you after what we did down there. I mean, Terry, Terry, you, and, 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 you know, in the ring, you got good really quick. I mean, you, that mind of yours, you, you, had, you, you had to be focused on all the, all the outside attract, uh, distractions that my brother and I presented you. I mean, <laughs> we could tell in a car. I mean, you, your mind was always on the sport. And uh, you had that passion right from the very beginning. And you got so good real quick. John, I can't tell you this. This guy come in and, uh, you know, we heard Mike had told us the story. You know, he hadn't worked much and, you know, he was a rookie. But like he said, Ed, Ed, once Eddie takes you under that wing and puts, puts his arm around you and starts whispering in your ear, it's it's like you're getting a gift, man. You you're getting a gift. You you're learning so much knowledge, and you're learning so much psychology of 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 the match and of the people and what 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 the fans are expecting from you, right, uh, Terry? I mean, this guy was his word was was with gospel. It, it was, and, and the believability factor and the intensity that was my career that I that I I molded my character around was that believability thing. I, I didn't care about, you know, being able to do the, the most acrobatic thing in the world. I didn't care about anything, but, but people believing when they walked out of the building that they, that I was for real and that I, I had really presented a contest and, and, the, and they'd been in that contest with me because you, you brought them into the story. They were in the struggle. I mean, uh, I can't tell you, John, how many matches that Dusty booked, booked me in with, uh, with Brad Armstrong as my partner, or Scotty McGee, where we went out and did 45 minutes with the kangaroos, and and <laughs> and to 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 fight from the bottom up, you know, for 20, 30 minutes in a match is the hardest work, you know, I ever did. But you learn the psychology of how to keep those people coming and wanting it. So when that you know that end that that pop came, you know, they were ready for it. It was it was like huge. You know, one thing that I saw that uh, you've done an interview, you talked about the fact that uh, when you first met Tully Blanchard, Tully just wanted to be the best heel alive. That's all he wanted to be. And very few people actually want to be a heel. I know because I was, was a heel most of my career. Hot Rod, uh, Roddy used to always tell me, he said, kid, there aren't many people who want to be heels. They really deep down don't want to be heels. They don't want to be called names going through the airport. They don't want people to sneer at them. They want to kind of be loved. Uh, Tully wanted to be a heel. And you just wanted to be the best baby face in the world. You want to be world champion. You want to be over. Yeah. You didn't care about the, like you say, the flips, the flops and all that stuff. Not to bash these guys today. These guys, they are awesome. I'm not taking yeah. a shot at them. Yeah. I'm just talking about how your mindset was, I'm going to be the best in the world at what I do. And that kind of got, when you and Tully got together, that really made that rivalry between you two that ended up lasted eight months more incredible than ever before because of the believability that went into this. Yeah, and and so to you know you couldn't you couldn't write a screenplay out any better than the way all this happened. So at you know after 
I'm a year and a half in the in the Florida territory. Dusty's been the booker for the last uh, eight nine months that I'm there. And uh, and Andre one night was eating at Fat Man's Barbecue, and he looks over at me. And he said, "You know," he said, "You you need a you you're doing great." He said, "But you need a handle. You need something catchy that people will think of." He said, "You kind of look like that guy, that Tom Selleck guy on that TV show." He said, "You should be Magnum TA." Okay. And that, that had a nice ring to it. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what, you know, where that was going to go. But he was going up to Vince Sr., going back to New York. And his idea was to take me up there to New York, bring me up there as Magnum TA, and, and launch Magnum there. Unbeknownst to him, Ernie, who was booking, Ernie Ladd, who was booking for uh, Mid-South, they had just lost Paul to New York. I get a call in the middle of the night when Paul's left from Ernie saying, there's a top spot open. If you want it, come get it, and we'll give you we'll give you the chance of a lifetime. So before Andre could open the door, I get the call from Bill. I go to work for Bill, who was whose mentor was Eddie, and Bill was just the next progression in that intensity believability aspect of of me molding this character, this Magnum character. Because again, all I knew it was a catchy name. I didn't know what I was really going to do with it because I'd never worked on top. I'd worked in the middle of the card. I could talk a little bit, but I wasn't afraid of the mic, but I didn't have a persona to really dig into and, you know, make mine. And it, it, it came through, you know, just like, you know, learning the ropes on the, on the road in the car, just being on the mic and going through different angles and different stuff brought the intensity out more and more. And that's where I, I honed, that character and he became kind of the lone wolf, the little different kind of baby face because I was a little rough around the edges. I still sold and had the comebacks and I still fought from the bottom up and did all those things because I mean, I was 240 pounds. There was a lot of guys that were way bigger than me. So it was very believable to have somebody, you know, get the advantage. It's 300 pounds uh, and you're, you know, 240. But that character got built there in a year and a half of now main event programs where I learn, you know, the intensities and the things you need to do, the nuances from like Bill Dundee, he was booking you coming from Tennessee and from Bill himself and a, and a cast of people that were really amazing workers around me. I was able to now take my skill set up. Now I've worked a year and a half on top. So when the door opened again, Barry goes, leaves dusty high and dry and goes to, to uh to New York because he's starving and uh Jimmy Crockett and and Dusty called me middle of the night I'm on top now in mid in mid south making over two grand a week and the guys are starving in the Carolinas but Jimmy gets on the on the phone with me and says hey I'm gonna give you the opportunity of a lifetime the keys the golden keys right here I'm gonna give you the biggest shot we could ever give anybody if you'll come and I worked a six-week notice for Bill. I got browbeat in the in the meetings every every week at the Irish McNeil's Boys Club where we film. And got you know told everybody how crazy I was for leaving on top and uh, going to you know going out there to work for Jimmy Crockett. And uh, but it 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 all happened for a reason, and it it primed what was coming for Tully and I. That was just you know magic. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Did you understand culturally, culturally what was going on during that time, say in movies? You know, the, the good guys were not no longer wearing the white hat. You know, you had Stallone come along who was really the antithesis of the good guy hero. He was the bad guy playing the good guy, and people liked that. So he had this anti-hero start developing. You know, that got huge in the Attitude Era with Stone Cold and The Rock. You were 10 years at least before that. Did you see what was happening culturally with how movies and culture was shifting? Or was it just your mindset that, hey, this is what I need as an edge to get over as this baby face? Well, it's, it's funny because uh, I, didn't, I didn't think about it, but I was being influenced by it. I've got a picture of me. You know, uh, when, I, when I first went into the leather jacket gimmick and, and, and that look, it all happened because I, they had done everything they knew how to do with me from Brooks Brothers suits to punk rock clothes, all this different stuff. And I was going to go back to Florida. Dusty and I had worked out a deal. I was going to come back to Florida, Magnum TA, the Lone Wolf. I went and bought this Harley Davidson motorcycle in Baton Rouge. Jim Duggan and I rode down there, picked it up. I bought a black leather jacket. I rode that motorcycle to the town. People went crazy. I walked in the dressing room that night with the leathers on. People went crazy. I came back to Shreveport because I'm getting ready to go. And Bill looks at me and says, you're not going anywhere. And so I had a year run. Now is that, again, heelish looking baby face thing. And, and I had actually wrote a picture to autograph my mom. I said, look, mom, good guys do wear black. Because the Chuck Norris movie back then, good guys wear black. I'd remember that catchphrase. And, and it did. It, it, I, I saw that being something that was kind of edgy. And it, you know, proceeded like me knocking the president of the NWA, Bob Geigel, you know, on his on his keister, you know, long before you know Stone Cold was doing that with Vince and and all those <laughs> things. But I was I was heading that character was heading down that road. I didn't I wasn't like the one in the little crowd of baby faces all going ye, ye, you know with the little the little thirteen year old girls screaming. I I was the serious character that the eighteen to thirty five year olds looked at and saw something edgy that they could, you know, they, they could get excited about. 
you accomplished something, Terry, uh, that a few people, you, you were able to escape Bill Watts. And, and, and like you said, you know, <laughs> normally you just have to give two weeks out. And Bill, Bill was one of those guys, you're my top guy. It's going to take more than two weeks to beat you in every town that I got. So you're staying for me for six weeks, right? And that was the deal. You stayed those six weeks, and and they beat your ass every damn night just to, just to show you. But uh, I'm surprised he still let you go. Well, you know, he Bill Bill and I had this unique relationship. He, I, I'm not sure Bill knew exactly how I was wired because Bill's one taught me how to throw a punch, and that's scary in and of itself. Anybody that's ever got punched by Bill Watts, this working punch, knows that that's, you know, not exactly a, an artistic thing. But it looks really good. You know, it, it, it's solid. And uh, and him and I used to stand in the dressing room, and he would he'd use me to show the other guys how to, how to throw a punch because he was always all over these guys that bad punches. But then he would trade with me, and I'd give him one just like he gave me. And, you know, he's not going to like go, ooh, you know, he's not going to sell it because I'm just doing it like he did. But it, it was like it was it was a some kind of mutual respect there. And he really did, you know, help bring me to a new level. And I, I always give Bill, Bill props. I call that my graduate school yeah. era before I got the biggest break of my lifetime. Yeah, when Bill Bill left Florida, he, he said, "You know, I got I got I got my degree at Oklahoma University, uh, but I got my PhD from Eddie Graham at uh, Florida Championship Wrestling." So, you know, you 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 basically did the same thing. You come down here with Eddie, and I mean, and and, and not taking any away from Don and Owens up there because he was a great teacher and, and trained uh, so many great competitors up there. But yep. then you get to get come down here and get that knowledge from the master himself, Eddie Graham. And then you go back, uh, you go to one of his main disciples, Bill Watts. So you're really blessed uh, with, with, with that knowledge and that Eddie Graham. And then you, from there, you, you go and you get under that learning tree with Dusty Rhodes, who, who loved you like a son. Man. He did. And, and you know, Dusty and I had never met in, in, he he was down in Florida. Of course, Barry was like the chosen one with him, like always, because of Blackjack and their relationship. But Barry was patterned one night, and Dusty and I ended up riding back from Jacksonville or somewhere. And he puts his Frank Sinatra tape in the, in the dash. <laughs> and and I grew up, and it was very diversified. I was around all kinds of music, different things growing up. I played the guitar from the time I was eight years old and all these things. And I knew the words to every single song that came out of that thing. And he was like, I was from another planet because he loved this old, you know, show music. And I knew it all. We were singing and breaking and just having a big old time. And we we just formed this bond immediately that was undeniable. And we we just became like, you know, brothers from a different mother that instantly. And it, and it remained that way, you know, basically, you know, till the end. <laughs> so it's pretty crazy. Terry, I hate to jump around a little bit, but you mentioned the Bob Goggle punch, and that came off of a press conference you had with Nikita Koloff where he jumped over the table and got beat up uh, Nikita and then ended up uh, getting reprimanded by Bob Goggle and punching the authority figure, you know, way before, like you said, Stone Cold Punch, Mr. McMahon. But Nikita did an interview I saw that uh, online where he talked about the fact he brought your mother to the press conference and you didn't smarten her up at all. At all. <laughs> so no. what was she thinking while all of a well, sudden Dud gets in a fight? Well, you know, K Fab was king back then. 
And and I didn't smarten anybody up about anything, you know, mother, dad, you know, did, didn't matter. I mean, if, if you put two and two together about things after some point in time, you know, I, I never insulted anybody's intelligence, but I never say anything. So Dusty gets the idea because he'd shot this video. Dusty always liked me to be like, like, you know, this lonely guy that, you know, that was uh, like unobtainable kind of person, but but wanted me to have this soft spot and know that I had this relationship with my mom. So he shot this video back before I wrestled Flair in one of our go-rounds and uh, with my mom and I on the beach and me training and all this stuff. So he said, it'd be great for your mom to be there when we do this, this signing. So they bring her in from Chesapeake, Virginia into, into Charlotte. And no, we don't tell her anything. And she's terrified of Nikita. I mean, he's just, you know, he's 290 pounds and, Looks like, you know, fire coming out of his eyeballs and Uncle Ivan and, you know, the whole deal. And uh, so, you know, we, we you know, of course, we had our, our deal all, all figured out. And, and she comes in, sits down in her chair, and, and, and they're, they're doing it. And Sandy Scott was uh, doing the commentating, the signing. And we had this key word that, that he was going to say, we were going to let it loose. The man I came over that table and my mom, my mom sold it like an Academy Award winning actress. Like she, <laughs> we could not have told her that was going to happen and her reacted the way she did. I mean, she was just <laughs> flabbergasted, shocked, didn't know what to do. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's out there on YouTube somewhere, <laughs> but it was, uh, it, it was amazing. And I, you know what? I don't even think I smartened her up after it was over. Because <laughs> they left the room and I was selling. They stopped a mud hole in me before it was all over with. And we, you know, everybody left. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know how long. I don't know. I'm not sure I smartened her up until I had the wreck. To be honest, I really don't know. <laughs> We've all had, you know, different angles and different storylines. And it's tough, you know, now, especially today, because everything happens in lightning speed. You know, when you have so many different wrestling shows and you have multiple shows per week. But it's tough to go, say, pay-per-view. Another pay-per-view and a third pay-per-view, which you do in big angles, big storylines. By the time you get to the third, you've done almost everything you can do. You went eight months with Tully Blanchard. How in the world did you guys get almost two, well, two-thirds of a year out of that angle? They knew we they they knew we, we hated each other. I mean, the the people uh I mean, he used Baby Doll as perfect distraction and JJ in different ways, but it, it became just such a personal deal. The same people that saw me beat Wahoo McDaniels, who was legend for the U.S. title in Charlotte, North Carolina, in the Coliseum, saw Tully screw me out of the title with, with a roll of quarters that a Baby Doll dressed up as a police officer comes down, slips in the quarters, Nobody sees it. He hits me. Quarters go everywhere, and 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 it and it was so eerie. There's like ten thousand plus people there, and it was that white heat because I sold it for ten minutes. I didn't wiggle. I didn't move. He got the one, two, three. He didn't know I was going to get out of the building. It was horrifying. So the heat started off so great that it was just the battles that ensued and the things we did afterwards. And Dusty kept it alive on TV with all kinds of different things and different distractions he made to keep it from coming down to that contest. But, uh, you know, it was because, like you said, no social media. We were able to take it around the whole United States. And we had as brutal of matches for 
better maybe that weren't inside of the cage and weren't with the I quit, uh, you know, stigma to go along with it, but all over the United States. So Tully and I weren't really thinking about the fact that, that, that uh, we were doing anything historic. Because this is what we did, you know, him and I did that seven days a week. We beat the crap out of each other, fought out in the crowd, you know, juice every night. I mean, just, you know, just blood, guts, and gore and, and you know, get it again. You know, we didn't even talk to each other. We knew each other so well. It, it, I, I don't even know what calling a spot was after eight months of that. Because we just, <laughs> it was like, you know, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. We knew what we were doing. That's a great feeling. That's a great feeling, Ed and Terry. You where you just react instead of thinking about what's going on, and it's it's a reaction. But you you mentioned something earlier. John and I have talked about a lot of times, and it's that white heat where the building just goes quiet on you, and it's just still. And you're laying there, or you're on top, and you're thinking, "Man, this is it." I mean, you have one more move. And you don't know what's going to happen, whether it's going to be a full-scale riot or, or what. But there's nothing like that feeling, is there, brother? No, and it's not. And it's, most, it's the most addicting adrenaline rush of anything I've ever been a part of. I, I try to tell people, you know, they say, oh, why didn't you, you know, you know, get caught up in this or get caught up in that? Because performing for me was the high. The, that being part of going out, you know, not just to tear the house down, but leave, you know, I wanted people walking out the building talking about it, going, oh my gosh, you know, talking about it, you know, or at break time the next day at work. I wanted people talking about it because they couldn't figure out for the life of how somebody didn't end up going to the emergency room, you know, you know, how, how we were still alive after what took place. Does it amaze you that, uh, you know, most wrestling fans, I don't know what the average age is, you know, wrestling really is a cross section. You know, you go to a show, you might have a stockbroker sitting next to just a, a regular, uh, worker that's in a factory. You know, there's really a cross section of wrestling fans, and I'm not sure the age demo that is an actual, say, the, the typical median age of a wrestling fan. But that was over 35 years ago. Most wrestling fans, I would assume, were not even alive then. But when they talk about great cage matches, they always talk about the I Quit match. Does it amaze you that that match uh, now, 35 years ago? is still being talked about in such reverential terms. Did you know at that time when you walked out of that, that was a freaking masterpiece? I, I felt it was, it was, it was something magic happened. Uh, the, the only time I really realized it was at the end. At the end, when I had him by the head and I had that god-awful-looking spike, like they didn't know whether I was going to drive it through his head and literally <laughs> leave him there with a poking out his head or what was going to happen. It was, it was like, I knew we put the period on it. I knew it was done, but I didn't know it was going to be relevant, you know, 30 some years later. No, I had no earthly inclination because again, to me, it, it got captured because it was pay-per-view and we did so much and, and Jack and Jerry, the same thing. They, so many classic things happened over the course of, you know, decades that nobody ever captured because it wasn't filmed you know can you imagine all the amazing matches like harley race and dory and, and jack and i mean just these guys had all over the world that were never captured on film yeah. you know you know though you knew terry when you walked out of that ring you had that feeling that we got them tonight though i mean you you just you see you have that sense of pride when you're walking out of that ring you know both of you 
Yeah, and, and you know, it is nice because I mean, all my children were born, you know, way after the fact. And my my youngest twins are thirteen year old uh, boy girl twins, and and they go with me to you know these nostalgia events and stuff. And 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 you know, it's got to be mind boggling for them because they've never known me anyway, but the way they know me now, and they look at these images of you know this monster because you know for for them to see me, you know, two hundred and forty pounds, you know, with blood flying everywhere and and you know, you know, fisticuffs and all the brutality of it has got to be, you know, surreal for them. Well, what do they, they think when they surreal. what do they think when they watch on YouTube? Do they come down and make a comment when they pull up one of those matches? Dad, why what would you think? And or anything like because oh. I know my boys, both of my boys, you know, weren't born until after, you know, I until I was doing my goofy stuff, you know, which I always do. But uh <laughs> but <laughs> But do, do, do they do they the goofy uh, do, stuff isn't the work. The serious Chris <laughs> goes the <to> work. <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think my the the boys look at it with a different sense of uh kind of you know like a, a pride kind of thing. And, and my, my daughter, I think it's kind of still a little scary too, because they don't want to think of me being able to be that violent. Uh it's hard to imagine. But I, I think you know for for boys that are competitive and athletes and whatnot, they've still got to say, you know, I came out of a good gene pool anyway, because my pops used to be able to, you know, lay it down pretty good. Terry, you brought up something that's really interesting. You know, you talk about having an incredible match that's not filmed. I remember in a tour one time down in Mexico, I was working and, and all of a sudden one night I walked out and I thought that's the best match I could ever wrestle. And when you walk out, you don't know when it's going to happen. And you don't always know during the match that it's going to be a masterpiece, but sometimes it is. And then sometimes you go out the next night and you say, we're going to do it again. And it fails, which happened to us. You know, it's just the craziest thing that every night is different in front of fans. And that's why it's so important to have the ability to be able to listen to the fans. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's that adrenaline that you talk about, that when you get it right, you don't give a damn if there's five people there are 5 million people there. You just did the best you could possibly do at your art. And that's like mainline uh, drugs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Stand in the middle of, you know, 20, 30,000 people. And they're so loud that it goes quiet, that it's so loud that all of a sudden you can hear stuff going on in your head and you're like in another world. And it's like totally surreal. I mean, I, that, that is nothing I've ever been able to duplicate in any other anything that I've ever done in my entire life, as far as a satisfaction type, you know, feeling for, for doing something. And, and, you know, I, I talk to different people that are different lines of work and do different things. And I say, you know, performing is such a blessing. You, you're so, to, to develop a gift, do it, get paid crazy amounts of money to, to do it, get this notoriety and whatnot. But to experience that with so many people, that that it did. It impacted them for 20, 30 years. You made them feel a certain way that they can remember 30 years later how it made them feel. And they were sitting there with their grandpa or their grandma or, you know, or watching it on TV on Saturday nights. They, it brings back all these memories because you made them feel a certain way because something you did that you loved. How does it make you feel when how's it make you feel when one of these kids come up, you know, real little, you know, about 10 to 12 years old and say, Terry, Mr. Magnum, you were my granddaddy's favorite wrestler. My grandma, my grandma loved you. <laughs> I mean, uh, you it, it, 
and, and you know, and, and I love it. And I mean, you know, my earliest memories of television about seven, eight years old were watching Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling with my dad. And I watched Wahoo and Johnny Valentine beat the crap out of each other in that silver that that goldfish bowl full of silver dollars. Right. right. You know, and and those are the memories that I have from growing up. So to go from there to a, a, a little skinny kid in, in, in the eighth grade to a state champion in 1977 to selling out Norfolk Scope with Ric Flair for the World's Heavyweight Championship in 1985 is, is kind of crazy. Well, let's talk about that. Okay, you, uh, uh, with, with Flair, I mean, uh, Terry, I mean, you, you, were, you were being groomed. I mean, did, did you have conversations with uh, Jimmy or, or Dusty or any of those guys uh, during this program that, Terry, you know, we were going to set a date. We're, we're, you're you're going to be the next champion. How, how, close, uh, how close were you to knowing that, that, that that was your next step? Uh, Jimmy uh, and Dusty and I flew to New York just for like an evening out. And they told me that the the whole committee had voted and they had approved it. And it was that close. What year was that? And this was nine is 86, 1986. And uh, they, and they were looking, they were just looking at the platform because this will blow your mind. And and I'm not saying anything out of school because Rick knows this. They wanted a young champion. They looked at Rick, who's 10 years older than me. I was 27. He was 37. They wanted him to be like the Jack Nicholas kind of persona in, in, you know, which would have never flown. He'd have left and gone to WWE, you know, in a skinny minute because he's Ric Flair. But their idea was to shift and they wanted a youth movement. They, you know, they, they knew where they wanted to go with it. They had it all, they had it all planned out, all figured out, and they wanted to change the face of the company. So that's what they were, that's what they were grooming me for. That's what was said. And it was, uh, you know, I didn't have a date. But uh, you know, I, I, you know, I suspect it would have happened in '86. Uh, you were in a program with Tully at the time, or a- I was in a program with Jimmy Garvin. So I was in a cool off. I was in a cool off program with Jimmy after the Best of Seven series with Nikita, and then I was going to go back to Flair. Was that in a time? So you had, I guess, one or two WrestleManias at that time. I guess the first WrestleMania was in '85. So uh, Vince was just starting to put the mega shows together. The territories were just starting to put the super clashes together. Was this in response to Vince, or was this this just a matter of business that, hey, we want to move forward with Magnum TA, or was it a little bit of both? Well, basically, they had, you know, Jimmy had said as much when I was in uh, Louisiana, when I was in Mid-South. I mean, he told me I could have anything I wanted. And, And I had never made any bones about the fact that I wanted to be the best in the world. And back then, when it was the 10 pounds of gold before the big gold belt, that belt was something. It meant something. The belt that Jack carried, Harley carried, Dusty carried, you know, Dory. I mean, that belt meant something in the lineage. And it was a shoot because you got 10% of the gate. The world's champion got a 10% payoff out of the gate. 3% went to the NWA. That was part of their whole reason that the 10 pounds of gold belt went away and the big gold belt was was made because it wasn't any longer the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, even though they they alluded to that. When the 10 pounds of gold went away, they they stopped paying out all that money. 
they stopped paying that 13%. Yeah, they stopped paying that 13%, the 3% to end up being a 10% to the champion, you know, and, and the guys, the guys used to get, well, I know speaking from Jack's standpoint, you know, when he had, when he had to go, he had, he'd made a shot in Richmond, Virginia and caught, we took, took him to DC. He caught a nonstop flight to, to Tokyo, defended the belt that night, had to give up 3%. He told, he told, uh, Sam, screw yourself. I'm keeping all here. And he kept all the money. Then he flew all the way back to St. Louis to the next night and wrestled another hour. You know, that that's, you know, and give up that 3%, you know, and plus the promoters, I mean, Fritz, and that's the reason Fritz didn't bring the champion in a lot or even Bosch, you know, because Fritz didn't want to pay that 13% and then give up that, that 3% to, uh, to the NWA. He didn't feel like they deserved it for, for anything. Yeah. John, they, they launched TBS is which, what took the end of the Crockett's off. All right. They, they made the deal because Vince got off, went to USA we took over that show. They put Flair and I together for a marquee to take all the way around the, the country to show our product. They, we, Dusty used to call it the pride in our product. Flair and I did 19-hour Broadways in one month. Wow. wow. One month. Wow. Flair had his first $100,000 month with me. Wow. Going, going, going around doing that. I mean, Three Rivers Stadium in a hailstorm. I mean, did it all. It didn't matter where it was. We did the hour all the way around the entire loop. And that's wow. how we established the product the NWA was bringing to have something markedly different than the entertainment side that the WWE was enjoying you know, such uh, success with, with Hogan and, and the colorful things that they were doing. So we were trying, we, I mean, we were going in the same towns and the same nights and selling out two different buildings. WWE over here, we are over there, and we're both selling out. I mean, how many wrestling fans are there? You know, it was crazy, right? Did, did it was you, hot in those days. Uh, and at that time, you had to know, you know, that you had the ability, Terry, uh, to to carry that 10-pound of gold and, and carry it with class. Well, thank you. And that, that means a lot coming from you, I will, I will say, because I – I, 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 I'll be honest, I really felt like I was ready after the program with Nikita for the simple fact I had always been the listener, always. I'd never been the general till I had the program with Nikita because Tully was, you know, such a, a hand. Right. I mean, we didn't talk that much anyway, but, but with Rick or Ted DiBiase or, you know, guys I've worked with that were great talents over the years, they generaled the match. Right. So when I got the program with Nikita, who had only been in the business a very short time, and we had a very successful program, and we tore the house down. I said, if I can do it with this monster, and I'm the one general in it, then I'm ready. I can do it. What did you think about the WWE product at the time? I mean, did you think it was just more show business, and you wanted to stay where the NWA was, I guess, considered more athleticism and more wrestling style? Did you ever consider jumping to WWE, and did you ever have talks with Vince? Ne I never had a talk with Vince until after the accident. I uh, never met him, never talked to him. Uh, and and be honest, I was such a loyal, diehard NWA driven in my bones from Eddie, you know, all the way through that that was, you know, that was just the benchmark. Now, had I seen the business floundering, the model changing, 
you know, realizing that they, they weren't keeping up with the times, weren't expanding the business, you know, things that had gone on. I'm not saying I wouldn't have had that conversation uh, because I certainly, I loved everything they did in the Attitude Era what I, that I watched. I mean, I thought that was, you know, took intensity to a whole new level. I mean, I, I you know, I think, matter of fact, they, the guys at Wrestling Tees got a shirt. I told them to make it says, Magnum TA Attitude Before the Era. Because that, that was that I was so comfortable in that role that that it was it it I, I would have been made for it. It would it wouldn't have been a stretch. And uh I mean uh you know Shawn Michaels was driving me around when I was the US champ, you know, back in the day when I came to San Antonio. Oh really? I, I would have loved to work with Sean and uh you know and and Brett and yourself and you know different guys. I mean, I'm sixty one years old. I had this accident at twenty seven. I missed you know, easily a 10 years of prime performance, but also feel like I never looked bad in a set of tights. So I didn't feel like I had to go out <laughs> and say, well, you know, am I too old to do this or not? So at least I got remembered in my prime. And you still look pretty damn good for 61 years old, the old fart. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> Jerry's, uh, Jerry's having surgery this week, and I have a feeling that I uh, finally am getting a chance to take him down. Uh, I've not, I don't have a good record against Jerry, but he's having some surgery this week, and I'm flying down to Florida, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take the shirt from him. I, I'm going to. Oh. <laughs> well, good luck with that. <laughs> when, hey, when was when was the what was the call you had with Vince? You say you mentioned the call with Vince after the accident. When yeah, what was, was the way, call with Vince about? Well, it, it was it was actually a face to face. The the uh, the historic event uh, when Benoit had his catastrophic end. I was at that pay-per-view that he was supposed to be at that he didn't show up. The right. pay-per-view was in Houston, Texas, I think. And he had, it was, uh, they had all these champions from different, whatever, uh, you know, there. And, and, uh, and we, we just talked for a few minutes and he said, what a shame it was because we would have made so much money together. Oh, Jerry, can you imagine Magnum TA against Brett or Magnum TA against Sean? Especially, uh, you know, when, when he was just saying about Sean driving him around, I, I can just imagine, you know, the, the matches, you know, the, the intensity that, that that Terry would have brought up there. I mean, he would have brought that rug, rugged style and it would have made a completely different Shawn Michaels, I believe, and a completely different Bret Hart. And uh, and I, I can only visualize and uh, and uh, and have wonderment smile on my face knowing the results of those matches. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story, Sean, and, and, and something happened to me and something I passed on to Sean. When I was in, when I was in San Antonio, a young guy named that, that became Hercules Hernandez comes in. Right. Ray, Ray's Ray. Got a, Ray. Ray's got a grocery bag, like an old timey big brown bag full of performance enhancing stuff. Right? <laughs> no. I mean, spilling over. So Ray weighed about 216 at the time. And I was all, I was I was still about two thirty. I was I was not quite as big as I ended up staying, but so Ray and I start working out together and sharing his grocery bag, and <laughs> and I went up to two seventy, and Ray I don't know where he he just started like looking like he was going to explode, but I walked into a dressing room and Bruiser Brody was there. He said, "Kid, you're looking great." He said, "But I got to tell you something." He said, "If you become a star based on the way you look." And you've got to do what you're doing now to maintain that 12 months out of the year. You've written your own epitaph. 
Wow. And, and, and a light bulb went off and I said, hey, I'm going to find a happy medium, a place that I can sustain a size that I'm happy with. I'm going to learn my trade. I'm going to learn to work. I'm just going to be the best version of me I can be, not because I'm all jacked up on the juice. Not going to do it. Change. Gear went off. Same thing with Sean. So I see Sean in Flair's personal gym after my accident. I'm over at Flair's house and Sean's in there working and he's pumping up and he's trying to get big. And I told Sean, I said, look, my friend, I said, it's an illusion. It's what you look like you can do, not what you can do. I said, find a happy spot, find something you can do, get as cut and ripped as you can get and be healthy and you'll have a long career. You'd be good. Because he was like trying to get all, he was wanting to get all pumped up and get big. I said, I said, it will do you in. And I watched him. He, you notice he, you know, he wore the long pants because he didn't have the biggest legs in the world, but he had good shape and, you know, he'd do his little double bicep thing. But Sean was just a size that he could perform. He could go 60 minutes. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And that was the same model that I based myself on. And when I saw Bruiser Brody's, uh, uh, you know, wife uh, in, in Iowa, uh, I was telling her the story because, I mean, I, he, I was, I wanted to be the road warriors back then. I, w- I was going to go to 300 pounds, no <laughs> answer buts about it, but I'd probably, uh, you know, been in the ground uh, in four or five years down the road, like so many of my contemporaries, uh, mixing all that stuff together and drinking like a fish. And, uh, and, and it, you know, I did, I didn't do it. And you didn't, you couldn't be the kind of performer I wanted to be. I mean, I want to be able to go 60 minutes, 90 minutes, tear the house down, not get blown up. I, I, I have not one time in my life, in my career, even when I first started, got sick in the ring, been one of those guys that had to roll in the ring and throw up. I mean, I was always about conditioning and, and I want, cause I wanted to perform and get the best I could give. And you can't be 300 pounds and perform the way the, that we did. You know, back then, you can't go 90 miles an hour and hard hitting up and down, back and forth, fighting from the bottom, you know, blood, guts and gore and uh, and and be jacked to the moon on the sauce. Just can't. Terry, why after uh, your accident, you, you did some commentary. You're a very smart guy. You're very articulate. You probably could have had a career in commentary for as long as you wanted or some type of authority figure. You did a little bit of an angle later for, for Dusty and created the Midnight Rider. You know, your, your accident created a lot of things. You created the superpowers. You created Nikita. You created Dusty. You didn't create Dusty, but you certainly helped the, the superpowers get going. Why did you not stay with the business after that? couple things. First of all, the family that I had grown so tight with, the Crockett's and with Dusty, when 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 they sold the business to Turner and a group of corporate people came in and took it over, it was like I was with a bunch of strangers. Uh, they there there was no there was no loyalty, there was no respect. There it, it was like. Uh, it, it, it was the most uncomfortable feeling atmosphere I've ever been in in my life. Uh, it, it's like the old story of the guys that bought Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus because they had the money, but they had no idea how to run the circus. TBS knew this was the greatest product going, and it had made their station and their brand uh, through the hard times. So they thought owning it would be great, but they had no idea what to do with it. You hire, uh, uh, you know, Jim Hurd to come in and run it. And he hasn't got a clue. So my passion 
was to I wanted to te- be able to teach people. And, and still, I, I've forgotten more about psychology than most people uh, that are, you know, you know, doing it today uh, could, ever, could think of. But the thing of it is, I wasn't around people that were passionate about it like I was. So I didn't have the vehicle to, you know, at, I'm 28, 29 years old. It's not like I'm an old guy, retired, sitting around talking about what used to be. I should have been out there, you know, doing it. But you got guys that are, you know, on 350, $400,000, $500,000 contracts looking at me, like, what am I going to tell them about how to do something, right? They, they didn't have the respect because they were making so much money. Therefore, somebody thought so much of them that what could somebody, you know, teach them about doing it? And, you know, we had Sting and Lex Luger and, you know, all the, these young guys that were, uh, you know, out there doing their thing. But I wasn't part of the machine. And, and I do, I will say this, I, when I went, and did that event for Vince. And I just sat back and Flair was over somewhere and Jim Ross was over somewhere. And, I, and it felt like home, you know, sit, just sitting there before the event with the guys walking around and stuff there. I have never done anything in my life since, nor will I probably ever again, where that community of people, you know, is like a family, whether, and it's not because we've driven up and down the road together. It's because we all share the same bond. It's like being in the biggest fraternity in the world. Whether they whether they go you know work through every step of the match that they do or not, we're all cut out of the same sheet of cloth. At the end of the day, we just I put a few bricks in that road that John Cena you know, went and built a skyscraper on, and uh, you know I, I'm glad to have been a part of it. I'm not envious. Uh, I wouldn't trade anything for the world, and, uh, and and I'd rather look back on something that's still relevant today, 35 years later, than. You know, tr- somebody trying to remember something special about me after a career that had drugged out way too long and way past my prime and, and didn't get to remember me in the light that, you know, that I would like to be remembered in. You mentioned that. Oh, it's, uh, it's something that Jerry and I talk about uh, quite a bit. You know, we, we were just sitting around BSing and talk to each other and somebody said, Hey, won't you put that on a podcast? I said, well, I don't know if anybody wants to listen to it. <laughs> Jerry said, well, we'll enjoy it. And we do, you know what? This is one of the most fun hours uh, we get to do every week is uh, I've never uh, met you before in person. We're actually on zoom right now, which is, well, you know what you have, and you don't remember, but I'm going to tell you. So I met you here in Charlotte. I was dusty was there backstage and I'll tell you how you remember it. You had hunting permits. You had hunting permits you were handing out. Think back. I told a Kamanian all back in the day. Oh, that's right. That's right. I got one of those. <laughs> I, yeah. do, I do remember. Yes. <laughs> so I knew if I told you the hunting permit story. That's, you, that's you right. Remember. I do remember. Because yeah. I kept racking my brain thinking, I think I'm, I'm sure I'm running a Magnum before. I'm sure yeah. I have. And that's, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, we had some fun backstage. People don't realize the, the backstage stuff. Is that's one of the things I miss most about the business. You you can't get over performing in the ring, but the backstage banter and the silliness that went on backstage, like those hunting permits, was just just just, just just total silliness that goes on back there. I mean, you you we we're all I mean we're all intense people when 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 it, when that music hits and that bell rings. I mean, the, the intensity comes on, and you got to you got to keep that intensity. A lot of fans don't realize how difficult that is for for you to go out there and 
and keep that intensity going and everything. That's the reason I'm, I'm respecting these young guys so much because they're doing it in front of no people now, Terry. And, uh, you know, uh -huh. I mean, uh, we didn't have a lot of people in some of our TV tapings, but there's zero people there. And they, they, they're learning by feel now. And I think once this thing is over and if thousands of people are in the arena, these kids are all going to be better because of this experience working with no people. And then yeah. boom, all of a sudden they got a full audience out there and they'll be able to feel that adrenaline like we have. Yeah, they will. They will. And, and, and I, you know, I think we're going to see that in the next eight to 10 months. I think we'll see that again. Well, yeah. I want to tell you this, Terry, coming from a guy that's seen you from the, from the beginning and you and I became friends, you know, uh, right away you know we 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 had a lot in common with the amateur wrestling and uh you know coming up with eddie and we became friends we, we've stayed friends but uh you know what i i guess like i said at the very beginning when i when i first saw you in the ring in, in florida man you were good and and, and uh, jack and i you know you travel with us we we heard your philosophy we heard your desire we'd talk i mean this this kid's going to be the real deal down the line you didn't disappoint. You you carried out everything that we would ever uh, hope for you, and uh, you had one wonderful career. And uh, man, I'm proud to be your friend. And and, and I was I was so proud of you when you came to Waterloo and you got to meet Dan Gable and share that experience with uh, with him. And John was inducted up in the same Hall of Fame. And so uh, you guys are brothers like that. And uh, you know, one of these days, all three of us are going to be able to get together, and we'll about challenge you for that damn leader. <laughs> well, I, I, I might be up for it. You just never know. <laughs> Terry, it's a tremendous honor. It really is. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Thank you for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen.